A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Ashley Stewart, journalist with Global News. Hello. Hi. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the mass murder that a lot of people have already forgotten about. And Hurricane Fiona. How did that feel? Bad? Probably pretty bad, right? Ashley, welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to everybody by Diana Hutzelak Alonzo, Brent Lauman, Bridget Huard, Timothy Hughes, Emily Mass, Riley Smith, Juliet Balfour, and Jeffrey. I'm Jeffrey, a mortgage broker from Toronto. I support Canada Land because they make Canadian news worth listening to. With guests that actually give their opinions, shows that actually say something about our world, and hearing Jesse talk shit about the news, it all keeps me coming back for more. I lost my husband and and my dad, too. The widow of one of the suspects of the James Smith Cree Nation stabbings, Sky Sanderson, wife of Damien Sanderson, is now fighting to clear her husband's name and for accountability. Sky Sanderson says she reported her husband and his brother, the other suspect, Miles Sanderson, to police 24 hours before the stabbings took place. Ashley, we have a feature that we'll get to later on the show where we we duly note news stories that deserve more attention, stories that people might have missed. You reported an exclusive story that, that I think a lot of people might have missed, but it is not a story that's going to fit in a small notation. It's just a few weeks since we had one of the worst mass murders in Canadian history and reporters from all over the world descended on James Smith Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. They were not welcome on reserve, and pretty soon reporters flew home, and then the Queen died, and then it seems to me that Canadian media kind of moved on from this horrible story. But you stuck around in Saskatchewan, and you've now reported a very long feature story for Global News. You've put a lot of facts, a lot of new information on the record, but you've also kind of written, as no one else has, 
about what happened during those awful hours in more detail than we've gotten anywhere else. It's a real examination of this community and what it's going through, and I think how they were failed by the police. It's a very long story that I encourage people to read all of it, but maybe you could summarize what you learned and, and how you learned it. <laughs> yeah, it, it does need a summary because it is very long. It is a half an hour read, so <laughs> it takes some real slog. You're completely right. A lot of people kind of moved on after the Queen died and we lost a lot of readers on this, but... I stayed around in Saskatchewan because the one thing that we were missing this entire time was what actually happened that night. I think we had a lot of small stories about um, isolated incidents and isolated people that died, but no idea how to link them together. So basically, I I just stayed and tried to get to know the people that were at the center of it. And they were the ones that kind of helped me fill in the blanks. So the story starts months before the murders. We've used a lot of narrative to tell the story. So the central part of our story is Sky Sanderson. She's Damien's wife, who tells us about the background to her and Damien's relationship. She says that he was violent towards her. He had substance abuse issues. They both did. They have three children, but she really describes him as kind of a family man who shouldn't be considered a suspect. He should be considered a victim. And that is what we heard time and time again from speaking to other people on the reserve. So Sky talks about the fact that Miles came down after he was released from prison and he's, he's got this kind of hold over his brother, right? So his brother was afraid of him a lot of the time. Miles started feeding Damien drugs. He was very manipulative and he came down the week of the murders and kind of took Damien away from his family, supposedly feeding him more drugs. The two brothers went out the night before the murders. They were intimidating people across the reserve. We have several people who saw that or were with them the day before. One person said that they were looking to beat up gang members. And then Sky said that she called RCMP 24 hours before the murders because she was worried that the brothers would do something stupid. Miles had beaten up his partner the morning before the murders. Damien and Miles had taken Sky's car to go and cool miles off, whatever that means. And Sky then lost contact with Damien. So she hadn't heard from him for a long time. She called the RCMP to get them to help her find her car and find the brothers. Both of them had outstanding arrest warrants, but the RCMP showed up. They found her car, but they didn't do enough to locate Damien or Miles, according to Sky. So we all know what happened next. 24 hours later, 10 people were dead, 18 people were injured, and it was one of the worst killings in Canada's history. And Sky kind of talks about what happened after, why she thinks she was failed by police. We speak to people who were injured themselves in the attacks. They were stabbed. And then I stayed around for a couple of the funerals and, and spoke to a lot of people about how that healing and grieving process is going to go and what needs to happen next, because obviously it's not over yet. It's going to be a very long, long road for people out there. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. You did a great job. There's so much more to it, so it's not an easy thing to condense. I think that, you know, one thing that's conveyed is you give the people involved a lot of humanity in the telling, and, and you sort of describe, and especially Damien, and I, I think there's still questions about his involvement, but the way that the community understands him as a troubled person, but like an active member, one of theirs, a dad, and reframing this notion of these two brothers on this joint killing spree. 
There's a lot, but there's a couple things, and, and, you know, I think you and your editors identified that there was news value to what you learned. Same as with port pic the question is, did police do everything they could have done? Could they have reacted sooner? These are important questions because we, of course, want to, like, learn something from this so it doesn't happen again. To learn that the cops got a 911 emergency call 24 hours before this murder spree is something that I was shocked to read and was shocked that I only read it in your story. I mean, every news organization in this country was covering this mass killing. This is important new information, but I haven't seen anybody even do a follow. If you were getting this news from Globe and Mail or CBC and you heard about the killings on those news sources, you would not know this new piece of information because as far as I can tell, we've been searching and as we record today, they have not followed up. Why do you think that this is kind of like, what's going on? Why has this story only been reported by Global? And I think there was one French media source that picked it up as well. I mean, I can't speak to why other media outlets haven't followed up. I mean, that decision, I guess, lies with them. But I would assume it's it's a very, very difficult story to tell, right? Because as you said before, we were not welcome on the reserve to begin with. There were cars driving around on those first couple of days um, of James Smith members saying, get off, you're not welcome here. So I think that turned a lot of people off. It's also extremely nerve wracking to go out on a limb and say something like this. I mean, this is a big revelation. So we've basically reported the fact that the RCMP failed here. And it's very difficult because the RCMP are not giving anything away. They've refused to comment on this. They've refused to answer any of the questions, well, most of the questions that I put to them a week earlier. We gave them a full week to respond. So the only way we've been able to kind of corroborate this story is to go and speak to as many people in the community as we could, saying, did you see the RCMP here? What did they say? What happened? Can you kind of corroborate the story that Sky is telling us? So I don't know if it's kind of an idea that other media outlets are, I don't know, are nervous about reporting it as fact. I mean, RCMP haven't commented. I really, I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm speculating here, but I know that when news organizations do a follow, they want to recreate the reporting for themselves, independent confirmation. And I could see them running into a wall there because you took the time. How long were you out there? I was there for two weeks. I was readying to go it was the Friday after the murders and I was I was about to go get a flight home and I got a call from one of the family members saying, well, do you want to come to the funeral on Tuesday for Gloria Burns? And I, I mean, it was, it's very difficult because as you said before, the Queen died just as all of the media had arrived for this press conference, the one and only press conference that the James Smith leadership did, and the Queen died during that press conference. So we all, well, I mean, I had this sinking feeling like no one is going to care anymore, you know, and that's, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's bad, but it's also good because I knew that a lot of journalists were going to leave, but also, like, I knew that the public were just going to stop reading this stuff because they were, consu- I mean, you saw the coverage of the Queen's death. It was wall-to-wall Queen everywhere. There was nothing yeah. else. So 
I stayed for two weeks in the end because after I was invited to that funeral, the chief then invited me to a sweat and to like get to know him and the community. So it's just one thing after another, like these doors, if you just invest the time, these doors keep opening. And it was very difficult to begin with because I felt like every single door was shut and I was running into wall after wall. And it was extremely, extremely frustrating. It was one of the most frustrating stories I've ever worked on. And that's kind of saying something because I've just come from Ukraine. <laughs> so. All I can say is that it was about investing time and you're completely right. I think if other media outlets had tried to to do it, I mean, a lot of these people just wouldn't speak to anyone else and that sounds very narcissistic, but it's more just the fact that they saw me around the reserve for two weeks. They knew who I was. They were more willing to speak to me because they saw me and knew my face than if some random person had just called the button. And if they at other newsrooms read your story and, and then wanted to call Sky Sanderson to just confirm what she had told you, I don't know if they would get a call back because they did not invest that time and build the trust that you did. And I could see newsroom decisions saying, well, rather than say, as reported by Global News, you know, we, we can't independently confirm this. It's not our exclusive. Let's just forget it, which I think is a real broken process in our news gathering. I mean, that, that is uh, a failure to news readers. Ashley, there's a whole complicated discourse about who tells these stories, about how to report on trauma especially, but on, on Indigenous issues at all. And ideally, it's Indigenous journalists involved. That's not always possible, and you're responsible for your reporting. I think that the, the main thing is you don't want to be an exploitative reporter who parachutes in and parachutes out. If you are going to be telling these stories, it's about investing the time and making the relationship and rebuilding trust with communities that have lots of reason to distrust the press. I think what you've achieved here is something that it doesn't seem like any other reporter has. It seems to me that you have done that kind of reporting. I want to move on to actually just deal with what you uncovered here and what the implications of it are, because this to me reveals such a glaring double standard. I mean, if this were to happen, if I were to call 911 and say, hey, there are two wanted men in my neighborhood. They both have rap sheets. They are both known to you. One in particular is a violent criminal that you've been looking for. They're here. They're here. And they stole my car and they are drunk and dangerous and I'm afraid they're going to hurt somebody. It would be pretty shocking to me if the police showed up, found my car, poked around a little bit for them and then said, sorry, we can't find them and went home. I mean, that would fall well below the standard of protection that most Canadians, I think, expect from police. What was different here? I mean, this is, this is the question that I've been trying to answer this entire time. It's the question that lies at the crux of this story that is still unanswered, right? So, I mean, the fact that even before this 24-hour uh, call that Damien had an outstanding warrant from 2021 and Miles had fallen out of um, touch with his parole officer, but both of them were hiding in plain sight. They weren't in hiding. They were at home. <laughs> it wouldn't have been very hard for the police to arrest them. Damien was at home with his family on the reserve. Miles was at home in Saskatoon, traveling between James Smith and Saskatoon the entire time. It's not like they were hiding from the police, you know? So yeah, you're you're completely right. It is it does seem like a glaringly it's it's a double standard and I don't understand why 
the RCMP came out. This is this is obviously Sky's story, which has been corroborated by a couple of other people on um, James Smith. But they went into this house where they found the car. They went downstairs. They asked the people that were there, are you Damien or Miles? And Damien was there, supposedly. Damien told the RCMP that he was, he gave his cousin's name, apparently. And the cops just kind of took that as fact and then left. Um, he did have an outstanding arrest warrant, obviously. He had a picture that was attached to that. Apparently he gained a lot of weight since then, so that could explain why he wasn't recognisable. But still, there was just no duty of care there to even take it a bit further and look around the reserve a bit more, supposedly. I mean, we don't know if the cops did any more to try and locate him because they won't speak to us. So this is the problem that we're running into is that from Sky's point of view, it seems like a massive failure. If there's more to the story, then the RCMP needs to tell us, but they won't. That is outrageous. And I remember in the early hours that the RCMP released two mugshots and almost instantly there were people on Twitter saying, Damien does not look like that anymore. Here's a more current picture of Damien. Like this is a small community and everybody knew Damien. It was only a cop who doesn't live there who would be face-to-face -face with Damien. Supposedly, he's on a manhunt for Damien, and he's face-to-face -face with the guy, and anybody else in that community would be able to say, that's Damien right there. You're speaking to him. But the cop doesn't know that because he's, like, put on some weight, and he doesn't know the people he's policing. I think we got to also point out, like, this is the Mounties. There is a history between this particular police force and indigenous people. These are the cops. These are the agents of the state who like rested babies out of mother's arms. Like uh, there's a long history of, of pretty much every kind of abuse that you can think of. So there are trust issues that I think impair people's ability to expect fairness or to cooperate with the police in, in ways that we would otherwise expect. I mean, there are First Nations that have their own police. I wonder if that isn't another lesson of this. There, there are police who live in the communities that they police. And in rural Saskatchewan, that is not the case in, in, in this community. Do you think that's one of the issues that's raised by your story? I think so. And also, like, we can't exonerate the uh, several of the community members here. I mean, the, where Damien was supposedly hiding there were two people there that were hiding him or harboring him or they were in his house and they didn't give him up either. So there are deeper issues there. The issue of um, tribal policing is one that Chief Wally Burns is now taking up and is really pushing hard. Like he, that, that is basically one of the main solutions he sees here is we need tribal policing and we're not going to settle for anything less than that. Like they also want like dedicated rehabilitation centers on the reserve because it's obviously a very entrenched problem that a lot of the people that live there do have substance abuse issues. And this has been, a lot of people are saying that this is kind of a symptom of the residential schools. It's infuriating that the police will not comment on, on this, but it's, I have heard these justifications before. I have heard these arguments made, you know, that we get called for domestic abuse and substance abuse related stuff so often. The distances are so far. We're so under-resourced. How are we to know when one call is going to be the, the call that, you know, there's going to be a mass murder afterwards? What they're saying in, in a different way is, yes, we do treat this differently because they're indigenous. I think there's like a practical consideration that uh, I can try to remain somewhat open-minded to. But, 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 you know, the bottom line, 
line is still the same, which is I can expect so much more protection and service from police than indigenous people can. A broken record here because it seems that every story about the RCMP leads to the conclusion we need to really be thinking about the future of the RCMP itself and who polices all of these various communities. But this takes me back to killing a Colton Bushy. Something is very, very broken. And I hope we don't forget about the story. And I appreciate the work you put into keeping this in people's minds. Thank you. I, I mean, I appreciate the response to this story. It's been huge. The amount of people that have been reading it to the end in a world where we are captivated by things for 30 seconds at a time and that's it is amazing. So, yeah, I think that the readership, it's given me a bit of hope in long-form journalism still. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Ashley, as mentioned, we want to point out stories that people might have otherwise missed. It's called Duly Noted. Do you have something to duly note today? I do. I'm going to be a bit self-serving with this because I have spent a lot of my last few months in Ukraine and I was due to go back, but obviously Saskatchewan took prominence. So I think in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of competing news stories and a lot of them have fallen by the wayside. One of those, I think, is the liberation of a lot of villages around Kharkiv. We have phenomenal Ukrainian journalists there who are obviously covering um, what's going on. 
we have a fixer who we worked very closely with. Her name is Anna Vlasenko. She's over there at the moment doing the job that we cannot do because we're tied up. But also, I mean, it's very easy for Western journalists to kind of parachute in and out of these things. We should be um, kind of holding the Ukrainian journalists over there. We should be holding them up and supporting their work anyway. So she's done an amazing job of telling the story of the liberation of Dubrova in Ukraine and Izium. She's written up a big piece on Global News about a woman whose son and husband were taken away and tortured in the days before the village's liberation. I mean, these kind of stories are just so heartbreaking that I mean, we're not seeing the half of them anymore. If it was Butcher or Irpin, I remember when those the stories about the mass graves came out then, and it was hugely global. Everyone cared. It was front page news everywhere. These mass graves are found in Izium, and most people have completely switched off. I mean, the readership on our site from anything in Ukraine at the moment, I mean... It's a sweeping generalization. Every so often they break through, but mm. it's paltry. You can tell people have kind of just switched off. So I would encourage everyone to keep reading about Ukraine, to kind of stay connected to what's going on there. Like, I mean, the story about this woman in this liberated village, she lost her husband and her son and her daughter and another female member of her um, family are missing for 10 days. So it's just insanely heartbreaking stuff that is just being swallowed by the news cycle. So I think everyone needs to keep eyes on Ukraine right now. Duly noted. That wasn't self-serving. This is self-serving. I'm going to duly note uh, <laughs> a super self-serving story. Uh, and, and this, I, I even, It's so self-serving I have to do a disclosure. This is a publisher's note. It's about stuff that I've been lobbying for. I have skin in the game, a dog in the fight. Several other disgusting analogies would also likely apply. But oh my God, Ashley, Parliament is currently debating the Online News Act, Bill C-18. This is quite literally the future of our industry, of the Canadian press, that is being decided by a committee of MPs. And there's there's just no coverage of this. There's just no reporting thus far. Perhaps that'll change by the time people hear this. But there has not been any coverage by media of the C-18 hearings. And... It is barely being mentioned in our press. All across this country, news people are following this very closely because this has to do with whether or not, you know, we exist or not. And I found there's one article in the Star and there's been two small, pretty much buried articles, kind of just like glancing attention that this is happening. I think that they are probably hoping that this just gets shoved through. They have a consensus amongst themselves, amongst legacy news in Canada. They have the liberal government on side. Heritage does not want to change a word in this bill. But there are over 100 of us independent online news publishers who are very concerned about this bill for self-interested purposes because the bill is crafted in such a way that it could shut out a lot of us. And by the way, I don't think Canada Land would be shut out by the criteria, but smaller organizations would be shut out by this. If you own your own small news organization, you could get shut out. And there's all kinds of problems with this. There's no transparency. Like we won't know which news is funded by Google or Facebook or how much money 
any particular news organization is getting from Google or Facebook unless changes are made to this bill. There's a huge problem in trust. People talk about the news crisis about, you know, the financial crisis of news. There's also a trust crisis in news. I can't think of anything more toxic to trust in news than introducing into the ecosystem the reality that some unknown level it's estimated 20 to 30%, but who knows, of of media that you're getting like 20, 30% of the salaries of the reporter is covered by Google or Facebook. Like if there's anybody who people trust less than journalists, it's Google and Facebook. Uh, so like if we're going to do this thing, if we're going to have this payment scheme, we have to have transparency. We got to know how much money is going to who. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. We have penned an open letter about this, and we're lobbying for changes that I think are good for newsreaders and, yes, good for us uh, independent news publishers. But, my God, there's like a near news blackout. It's a gray out on this stuff. It's barely getting mentioned in the press. Perhaps that will change soon. Uh, but I did want to duly note it. I mean, it's a great point, but also do you not think that that just speaks to the problem at the heart of all of this is that we're so under-resourced, we can't cover everything. (laughs) You mean maybe it's not a conspiracy? Maybe there's just... (laughs) It's just speaking to the heart of the problem. Duly noted. Ashley, devastating impact of Hurricane Fiona. Here is how that sounded on CBC's The Current. We went down and went through some of the rubble and my son was able to find some of these hockey medals and some mementos. And we did just get, you know, a couple, a few, a few things, you know, for our memories. Some pictures were on the wall on one side of the home that we, we salvaged and stuff, but everything else is gone. What was that like to go and sift through what was left? What was that like? What what was that like to go and sift through what was left of your house? It was fucking great, Matt. It was awesome. I had a great time. A swell old time sifting through the rubble of my existence to see if I could find some old family photos. Putts. Putts. What was it like? That's your question? It sucked. It was terrible. And and But he doesn't care what it was like. What happened next? I'm not going to play it for you. It's pure trauma porn. She cries. She breaks down and cries. And he says... I'm sorry. And it's this ritual. I'm sorry. I like Matt Galloway. I think he's a terrific broadcaster. What is with this? He's done it before. Let's play this other one. This is what Matt Galloway asked after a fire wiped out the town of Lytton, B.C. The cinder blocks had just covered everything and made it too dangerous to sift. But I was able at least to stand on the sidewalk beside my property and kind of make peace with it. Not really. What do you mean make peace Um, with it? What was that like? What was it like? We need to know what it was like when your town is incinerated. It sucked. I'll save you some time, Matt. It sucked. Have you covered like natural disasters? Have you been like in the aftermath around people who have lost everything? Yeah. And I've covered many. I I was in Lytton in the aftermath of the fires as well. I've been in uh, Christchurch after the earthquakes and the mosque shootings. I've been in Japan after the tsunami. I am a natural disaster chaser. I've been in that situation once. It was after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I didn't go right after. I was there like a a few months afterwards, but it, it absolutely was. I'm there as a reporter sifting through the rubble, talking to people who lost everything. And I felt like scum. I felt like a vulture. What is your practice? Like, how do you engage with people when you're doing that kind of work? I mean, it's the same with the stabbings almost, right? Like, it's just people experiencing unimaginable tragedy. And you have to go up to them and say, 
how do you feel? Or essentially you're asking how they feel, but I would try to avoid that turn of phrase. But it's so difficult. Basically, I go in not asking questions and not on the record from the start. I It's the same with Saskatchewan. I was in there not taking notes, not with a notepad, not taking my phone out and just talking to people about how how they were doing, basically. I'm always very careful while we're asking questions about what happened to say, but how are you and how are you coping with this, basically? So it's clear that we're we're concerned about their well-being as much as we want to hear the story. So, it I mean, it's such a tricky thing. And those clips are <laughs> a little bit triggering because I heard that so many times in Ukraine as well. But I also think that speaks to a little bit of a difference between TV news and print journalism and those kind of things. Because TV are, are they want an emotional reaction because they want to see that emotional reaction on camera, right? So, I mean, that is the crux of what they're looking for. Yeah, that's the the payoff. That's the money shot to that question. It works on radio and it works on television. And I don't want to be totally closed. I think that certainly there is perhaps value in expressing human compassion and solidarity. I don't know. If, like It doesn't have a high informational value. It's not like, oh, we're really curious what it's like. But what is the difference between expressing compassion to somebody when you're trying to report on what's happened and performing that compassion, performing like, you know, you're getting something out of it. You're getting that shot of a person, you know, the prurient interest or whatever it is that, that, that like to, to watch somebody whose life is just being destroyed. And then there they are on television breaking down. Is that about us feeling for them? Or is there something else that's a little bit nastier at work in what we enjoy or why that's compelling to watch? It makes me really uncomfortable. I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that from the informational point of view, what is valuable? Getting to questions about the government response. How about a question like, your home was just destroyed by a natural disaster. What do you want to ask the government about their climate change policy? I mean, maybe that would be a good question to ask people in those circumstances. A hundred percent. I mean, it totally, it's such a tricky situation and you're right. There is something nefarious about going into these situations and I don't know, sifting through people's emotions to try and get the reaction that you want. So I always feel awful going into these situations because I feel like I'm emotionally manipulating people because there's an end game for me here. I want the information so I can write a story. There's a very difficult line that you need to tread where people are vulnerable in those situations. So are they telling you that because they feel like they have to or they're feeling vulnerable or is it because they are actually ready to talk? And I think that as a reporter, you have to be so, so careful that you're not just taking advantage of someone's grief and they're speaking to you because they are just being exploited <laughs> compared to if they do seem ready to speak. I think we just have to be so hyper aware of our surroundings and you're right we need to ask smarter questions we need to go beyond the how do you feel what was that like what did you know like those very basic questions where you're just looking for an emotional response to what would you like to say to the government after something like this happens or or what needs to happen next what can we do to support you those kind of things i think are more important in those kind of situations yeah 
let's give benefit of the doubt to the team at The Current and to Matt Galloway. I mean, these were obviously people who consented on some level. It's just that they're consenting at such a weird time. I think the Lytton interview took place sometime after, but but the, the first interview was just right in the wake of this. So people are right in their grief. There's value, I suppose, for victims of these disasters to kind of know that we care, you know, so maybe they want to talk to the media for that reason. And then there's practical things. We can raise money and, and things like that. So let's assume that, you know, uh, precautions were taken to make sure this person really wants to talk to the media. But I don't know. Like, I think you can ask people how they're doing and, like, not include that in the broadcast, <laughs> you know? But also, like, think about your audience as well. What are the clips that go viral after something like this happens? What are the clips that your readers and your viewers and those kind of things share? It's always the emotional ones. It's always the ones that people are breaking down in tears. It's not the we think the government needs to do X, Y, and Z. So, I mean, in one way, they're kind of just giving the audience what they know that they want or share, I guess. What's the story that I click on? It's the one like, here's a slideshow of the devastation of this next climate disaster, right? Like, it's like, oh, damn, that, oh, wow, before and after pictures, you know? It's not all coming from a good place. It's not all coming from, like, oh, that's a shame. Like, there's something going on there, and, and I think you can't let the, the newsreader off the hook, I suppose. The audiences are, are playing a role in this gawking that's happening. It's pretty ugly. It can be, honestly. And like, we're all looking for that shock value or trauma porn, you know? Like, when something like this happens, we're going to be clicking on those kind of like really horrific stories because that's, it's just who we are. <laughs> I mean, you can't blame. I think it's easy to blame the broadcasters for this kind of thing, but that's what gets the clicks. And unfortunately, this is the industry that we're in and we're looking for the clicks. Oh, God help us all. <laughs> That is shortcuts, actually. Uh, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed about anything you heard today, uh, jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything you send. Ashley, where can people find you? Where can they find your reporting? You can find me on Global News, or you can find me on Twitter at ash underscore Stewart underscore. I want to make a quick announcement. We are hiring here at Canada Land. We are growing and we are hiring. We're looking for an office manager. We're looking for a managing editor. And we're looking for an editor-in-chief. It is time. Uh, it's been years now that I have been podcast host and reporter and publisher and our editor-in-chief. It is too much. I'm getting burned out. I think it's time for a change anyhow. Uh, it's time for somebody else, somebody new, somebody different. Somebody with their own editorial vision to take the reins and step into our top newsroom job. All of those jobs I mentioned are now posted at canadaland.com slash jobs. Journalists listening right now, have a look. Tell a friend. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we're doing here, if you want to help support independent news in Canada and get all kinds of great stuff that we want to give you, click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. We rely on your support. Thank you. 
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.